Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got Graham Ackhurst, Borderland, an Indigenous writer looking at notions of identity, but using sort of the conventions of, well, writing conventions that sometimes you'd find in uh, traditional literature as well. There's a blending of Aboriginal culture, European culture in it. I quite liked it. So here's my interview with Graham Ackhurst. One of the central questions for Australia and Australians today is Indigenous recognition. It speaks to not only Aboriginal identity, but to who we all are as Australians. An aspect of this is taken up in Graham Ackhurst's novel, Borderland. So, Graham, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Now, your main character here, Jonathan, is a city-born Indigenous teenager. He's graduating from high school, and this is the first thing that struck me. The Great Change Scholarship. What's education doing in many ways? European education. Sure. Um, there's a certain, there's a couple of themes that I really wanted to build out of this novel. And the first was the politicisation of Indigenous identity. And the education industry and the health industry plays towards kinds of deficit models around Indigenous students and Indigenous health. So what I was really trying to get at with um, the rendering of St. Lucia private and Jenny and Jono's experience was that Jonathan, as a young man, feels himself marginalised within that predominantly white space. He's on a scholarship. He's there as one of only two Indigenous students. So we begin to understand the types of borderlands that Jonathan is engaging with within that particular space. But then... He goes to an Aboriginal performing arts school and we see he's also marginalised within that particular community because he doesn't have the same cultural grounding as some of his peers. So what I was trying to get at is we're beginning to notice through Jonathan's journey that young Indigenous people and in this case particularly young Indigenous men, we find that we're coming up against many borders and we're navigating many types of marginalisation within our communities. The interesting thing in schools is, you know, they're well-meaning. They think they're doing the right thing, but you're, they're actually taking people out of country, so to speak, distancing them yep. from their foundation and their traditional education in some ways. Yeah. yeah. There's nuance and complexity to these types of programs that I was trying to get at. So in Jonathan's case, he's an urban Indigenous young man. Um, School was something that um, his mother would love him to do, single mother. And, uh, uh, you know, just Jonathan and his mother really is the the grounding of his particular family at the beginning of the novel. Um, And we see within other scholarship programs, the most successful are those that really support students like I'm thinking the Clontarf Academy, um, where Indigenous students are engaged with each other and they get time with each other and they get to build on their cultural understandings together. But here you go. You bring up this uh, division within the community itself as well because 
Jonathan is caught between two worlds. He's actually attacked by a group of adolescent Aborigines and called a coconut. Yeah. So this is the challenge he's got of finding his place. But it actually speaks to the bigger question in the novel uh, of being caught between two worlds because Jonathan and Jenny, his uh, partner in crime, so to speak, are given an opportunity to do a documentary for a mining company. And here you explore this division in greater detail. Is this good for the Indigenous community? Is it good for Australia? Can you sort of expand on the dilemma we find here? Mm. So the I, I go back to the themes or the sides of big issues that I wanted to grapple with within this novel. And the first was Indigenous identity. But the second was the interface between community, Indigenous communities and the extraction industry. Because it's a far more complex and nuanced engagement than people first understand. So in the character of Sid, we have a strong Indigenous man rooted into his culture, but given the sorts of economic um, situation of his community, he sees the extraction industry and the mining of Aboriginal land in the form of fracking, a particularly insidious form of um, mining, which literally frac- which fractures country um, as an opportunity for economic development, economic growth, and also jobs opportunities. But at what cost? And this is where I begin to make a, a nuanced sort of articulation of a particular fictional dreaming that we see in Wudan. Now, Wudan is a very interesting aspect of the novel in the sense that the malevolent dreaming fear is literally chasing Jonathan into his identity. But he's also a cry from the country because of the fracking, uh, the fracking that's happening on, on land. Now, this is interesting because you're getting into then uh, the style of uh, or approach here in this novel. It's gothic. As you say, Jonathan is chased by a malevolent force. So that's a, a gothic, which is in some ways a European sensibility. And you've linked this actually with the dream time. You've got very early on in the novel, Jonathan's mother telling him about Wudan and protection of country. Do these two concepts go together? Because you're actually blending here as well. Yeah, and we think about the conventions or the sorts of genre tropes and they've marketed this book as um, an eco-thriller gothic Australian horror book. Now, that means that there's a certain contract with the reader. Um, But what I think is interesting in the development of Indigenous literature in general is that we're beginning to use these particular conventions of genre, but telling the stories that we want to tell within the confines of that in a way that reacts so that the reader is still gaining that that understanding of the contract. We're not breaking the contract, but they're getting Indigenous stories the way we want to tell them. So in this sense, I was blending an ideology around what is Australian Gothic, which academic Janine Lane would call an Indigenous re- a form of Indigenous realism, um, to blend the dreaming aspects of the novel with the conventional tropes of horror and Australian Gothic. Just to give the listener an idea... 
A growl started to resonate around me. Two large ant nests made up the beast's eyes. Angry fire ants poured out of them as the wind blew harder. The growls changed. A word was forming. I felt confused. I heard the word again and again. I knelt and covered my ears. The sound became louder and louder. Sand and ants spilled out of the rock face, forming claws that reached out to me. The wind blew stronger, lifting dust and debris. I was struck by an immovable fear that rooted my feet to the ground. So there's the Gothic. Mm. But how appropriate is it? Does the dream time allow for that? Is it a change of interpretation? Is it a morphing? What's happening here? I think it's just a a particular lens of storytelling. Um, I wanted it particularly considering the audience considerations. This is a young adult novel, and you'll notice that my sentences throughout the novel are quite short and punchy so that the reader is really, you know, getting ripped through the yarn. Um, so there was that aspect, and I wanted to, it to be scary in a way that was compelling for the reader. So using the conventions of gothic horror seemed to be a great avenue to tell this story in the sense that through my Indigenous standpoint, I wasn't actually thinking about those conventions. What I was trying to do was just tell a gripping Indigenous yarn, and it so happened that it could fall into these conventions, which are, which is what I was saying earlier. Indigenous storytellers are becoming very clever in their in their use of genre. Yeah, because the dream time is virtually coming to life yeah. here. It's taking on a physical presence, and it is out for is it revenge or a realignment? How have you got it positioned here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a form of the landscape fighting back against the fracking and also the splitting of tradition that Sid talks about in the poem that he writes in the in the book. But I just wanted to leave it also very messy because I think young readers these days are incredibly intelligent. They have access to things that when I was growing up just weren't available as far as the, the discourse around... Um, entertainment materials and I wanted to privilege the fact that I have a very intelligent young audience so in the adult themes that we're looking at within the kinds of complexities around identity issues politicization of indigenous identity and the politicization of indigenous um, land and the interface between government and mining industry I wanted to make that a messy process where there is no exact right or wrong answer so that these young people can have really robust conversations in the classroom but also around the kitchen table. Well, you're actually raising a very interesting concept because it is the young people that are going to have to make the decisions. Correct. The old people, me, haven't been able to do it. I mean, the failure of the referendum, let's Mm. get political here, the older generation have closed off the discourse. You're actually arguing and making it possible to have or open up that discourse, which I think is important. Absolutely. And you might have noticed that the very last sentence of the novel is, um, we've got work to do. And I think the novel has an ending, but it's not the end. It's not the end. It's open-ended in some ways because Jonathan and Jenny actually have to finish making 
the documentary. I was wondering what was going to go on there, um, given what Jonathan learns in the process by going mm. out. But here's the other thing. Jonathan is has anxiety. Yeah. Uh, something I forgot to mention earlier. But the European approach is antidepressants, medication, mm. go see a psychiatrist, when in fact what he's engaging with is his identity and trying to find the voices that speak to him, yep. namely the magpies yes. and such like. Jenny has a different outcome in this. What happens to her? So we see at the beginning of the novel... Um, Jenny, the uh, female protagonist, has a really deeply rooted connection with what at that time she thinks is her Indigenous Narrable heritage. Um, and there's an inversion within the novel between the two characters. Jonathan begins his journey not knowing where his country is and where his, who his people are. And by the end of the novel, he begins to understand a real masculine identity and strength within his cultural heritage whereas Jonathan has a lot of un, um, a lot of questions around her identity in the fact that she begins to realize that she doesn't have indigenous heritage and you touch on this whole notion because also in there you have people claiming heritage that yes. they don't have at all it is a messy forum and as you say yep. it needs further discussion so the novel is Borderland. The author is Graham Ackhurst. I think it's important in terms of promoting that discussion because that's all we have because the final question in some ways is resolution. It's, it's mm. a useless word. Res there's no resolution. Mm. There's an ongoing discourse, really. That is absolutely correct. And that's what I really wanted to get out of the novel is to have young people seeing the messiness of some of the discourses around Indigenous identity, the extraction industry, and to, and to then continue to work on teasing out different narratives so that we can begin to get a more holistic approach to these issues rather than binary or divisive approaches. Borderland, Graham Ackhurst, and a University of Western Australia publication. Graham, thank you very much for talking with Thanks me. Thanks for having me. There is often an unspoken discourse amongst people, and Robbie Arnott's latest book, Limberlost, touches on what is left unsaid. So, Robbie, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. I want to start with Tasmania and its history, because this novel encompasses an arc over time of, of what's taken place in Tasmania. It was once known as the Apple Isle. Yeah, very much so. And the book opens on a, on an orchard in the Tamar Valley. We also have the social conditions of the time going out rabbiting. And there's a history there to rabbits and what the fur is used for. Yeah, very much so. So a lot of those iconic slouch hats you see Australian soldiers wearing over the last 100 years or so were all made from rabbit or kangaroo skin, but often rabbit pelts. And because rabbits are an invasive introduced species... Um, it's a way people could hunt them and remove them from the land while also making a bit of money. We also then have a change in how we perceive Tasmania in some ways. As the Apple Isle, they brought in pesticides and that boosted the crops, but it was the best thing to do at the time. Yeah, like so many things, the new technologies that come into any any industry, um, 
if you think about asbestos as a building material, it seems like a great idea at the time, but often there are ramifications. You don't find out it till years or decades later, and certain pesticides had that effect, um, and lots of other chemicals had that effect too. Um, it's worth noting that um, there's still a lot of apples growing in Tasmania, but um, the Tamar Valley, where the book's set, is mostly vineyards now. There's very few orchards left. All the trees were ripped out. And the other thing that comes up towards the end of the novel, Ben, is Indigenous dispossession, which seems to be something that has more resonance of late more than anything else. Yeah, that's a really, something that's really changed throughout Tasmanian, particularly settler Tasmanian culture over the last few decades. The understanding of Aboriginal Tasmania and Aboriginal Tasmanians is something that hasn't been addressed very well throughout the state's history. There seems to be a broader understanding of it now, but it's still a bit of a generational uh, divide that you see in Tasmanian culture of um, people from older generations not quite understanding where younger generations are coming from because that knowledge has been swept away or ignored for so long. Into this landscape, then, we place Ned, a young adolescent, and he's able to earn a penny or two by hunting rabbits. He's an adolescent, but he loves keeping secrets. It's almost what adolescents do in some way. Yeah, I think so. Um, he definitely does keep play his cards pretty close to his chest. Part of his reason he keeps secrets is because he's not a very good communicator. And like many young men, even today, but particularly back in the 1940s when Ned is growing up, young men and women weren't really taught how to communicate with each other or how to articulate what they're feeling or what they want. It's a lot easier to just say nothing and pursue your goals quietly. So it's as much his inability to talk as it is his desire to keep things secret. But he has a couple of particular secrets, a quoll and a desire for a boat. Yeah, so he, he catches a particular type of quoll called a spotted tail quoll. They're um, slightly bigger than a cat and slightly more dangerous. And they're a native marsupial. They're the second largest carnivorous marsupial left after the Tasmanian devil. And they live in trees and they hunt birds. And if they ever get their claws on a chicken or into a chicken coop, they'll do about twice as much damage as a fox. So Ned accidentally catches one um, in one of his traps. And rather than kill it, he decides to try and help rehabilitate it, even though it's trying to you know, rip his fingers and face off at every moment. So he has this quite fraught relationship with the quoll, but he just can't bring himself to kill it. And that secret desire for a boat, it sort of harks back to when his father took him out on the water and to address this myth of a whale, which we'll come to shortly. But I love this little passage here because he's taken the quoll to the vet as well as a horse, but the vet challenges him. What were you saving for? Ned was watching the quoll shiver. Sorry? The money you're going to pay me with. What were you going to do with it? Just saving. Strange thing to do. Coming here asking favours, telling lies. Ned stared at her. I said I'd pay you. Not what I asked. I was going to give it to my father. Help out. I know you're old man. He won't take your money. Why do you care? Why are you lying? I want a boat. The vet smiled. And there was a curl of sadness on her lips. Or perhaps it was the shape of understanding. Of course you do. Ned's thoughts were swarming. It had been so simple, a bit of pressure, and his secret was revealed. He swore at himself. Within him, there was a gurgling churn in his throat and his organs and his pulse. He couldn't face what he told her, couldn't acknowledge what he'd revealed. 
He scrabbled at his pocket, tinkling his fingers through the mess of coins he brought. It's uh, this secret desire. It, it's so unimportant and yet so essential for him to hold on to that secret. And then it's so easy to reveal, but it touches on how young boys can behave. The character of Ned has a great internal struggle going on. And like many young people, he feels everything very strongly. And so he feels a desire to help his father out on the orchard because they are struggling. His two older brothers are away at war and the orchard's not doing well. So he has this great sense of responsibility. And he also has this desire to have his own boat. To him, a boat is a key. And they live on the banks of a river. And if he had his own boat, he can go anywhere up and down that river, sail anywhere, fish anywhere. It's the ultimate sense of freedom to him. And he has this huge hunger for it. But he's a bit ashamed about this because he feels it's a bit selfish to be wanting something that's just for him when he should be helping out on the orchard. And he, these twin desires and responsibilities are chafing within him. And it's why he doesn't want to tell anybody, even though he's pursuing his goal. And, and it's probably clear to anyone reading the book, he shouldn't really be ashamed of wanting a boat. And nobody's judging him harshly for it. But as is with the case with so many teenagers, he is judging himself extremely harshly. I want to touch on the narrative and the way you've told this story. Because over the first three chapters, we have a decade later, 10 years later. And so over the first three chapters, we almost cover three decades, if not more. But that gives you the ability then almost to transcend time. You can step into the story over the course of the novel at different decades to see what's going on, to allow you then to cover that whole social history and that development of, of Ned's maturing over time as well. Was it hard to grapple with or did it come naturally? Yeah, it was a bit tricky originally until I settled on the on the format of the story, really, which was one chapter set in this pivotal summer in Ned's life, and then a chapter set a period later with all these other all these other alternate chapters with Ned getting gradually older. Because I wanted to show the totality of his life and how he changed and how the lad changed around him. Uh, many of which affected by his decisions. But I wanted to keep returning to this one pivotal summer of his life as a 15, 16-year-old and show how much it came to shape the rest of his existence and how what he did and what decisions he made came to shape not only his own life, but the actual course of the valley he lives in. It seems so simple and it's so easy then for the reader to follow. You do it almost naturally. So it was an interesting experience and I thought, what a simple technique. But in terms of that pivotal moment in his life, you begin the story with one particular moment about a whale. And it's almost mythic in proportion. It was believed a whale had gone mad at the mouth of the river. Several fishing boats had been destroyed in acts of violence so extraordinary that they were deemed inhuman. Each attack had come at dusk while the boats were passing the heads on their way back to port the same area where plumes of spray were supposedly erupting from the water. Transport ships reported powerful, mournful vibrations ringing through their hulls. Gulls flew strangely, cormorants seemed skittish. Ocean swimmers' strokes were thrown out of rhythm by a high, ancient melody that rose through the brine. A fluke tail had been seen troubling the waves. It's almost mythic in proportion, this story or enigma of a whale yeah very much so and that's how i envisioned it and it's generally how i always try to write not necessarily in photorealistic detail of the world but 
more how the world feels. And this story of the whale happens when Ned's around five. So it's intense story that comes to shape much of his understanding of the world. But because it happens when he's five, he doesn't really remember it all that clearly. He just knows there's these stories of a whale smashing boats around the mouth of the river. And it's not clear to him how much of it is true, how much of it is false, how much of it is exaggerated. And I wanted to give those elements where we tell the story of the whale that sense of mythic awe because to a five-year-old, that's how it feels. And I wanted that to be true to Ned's story as we follow him. And it also comes to represent his father and how he wants to see his father as being able to address these sorts of uncertainties and unknowns, but that falters as time goes on. Yeah, and Ned's father, at least in Ned's world, is the only one who sees the truth of what's really going on with this so-called mad whale, and he's the revealer of secrets and the the kind of holder of knowledge. And as Ned gets older, um, his father begins to struggle, particularly when his brothers are away at war, and Ned's father is a survivor of both Gallipoli and the Somme. And he's already struggling with what we would now call PTSD, but back then they would simply call shell shock. And with his two older sons away fighting in the Pacific in World War II, he really struggles to hold himself together. And Ned doesn't know how to react to that, doesn't know how to respond to this pillar of strength in his life suddenly crumbling away. But there's also an echo then at the end of the novel when Ned is talking with his daughters, and his daughters are virtually challenging him about the Indigenous question. The landscape, again, has changed in that regard, the social circumstances and understanding. And Ned, as a father figure himself, has to address how he's perceived differently by his daughters. Yeah, much like his own father, Ned finds himself on unstable ground in an area he um, isn't very knowledgeable about and doesn't hold any authority and it's very much a blind spot in Ned's life um, this idea and understanding of Indigenous Tasmanians as it is with many people of his generation and even down to my generation this idea that we see ourselves as Tasmanians and we're so connected to the land and we feel so powerful and loyal to this island yet for many of us there is this huge blind spot in our understanding of who it really belongs to but also a blind spot in terms of us being determined in many ways by the social circumstances that surround us. So Ned had used pesticides on the orchard, which was a good thing to do at the time, the best knowledge they had at the time, but then there are ramifications decades later. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it's a similar theme of wanting to do the right thing and believing you're doing the right thing. And as it turns out, you might have had terrible ramifications or you might have missed something that is really, really important. And that comes up again and again quite regularly in the novel, particularly with the issue of pesticides as well. Um, as far as they're concerned, they've got this wonderful, amazing new chemical that will that is both an insecticide and a herbicide and everything's fantastic and a fungicide but in reality there can be terrible terrible consequences well you don't realize the consequences until much much later and that is the art of what you've got here in limber lost limber lost by the way an interesting name because that's the name of the orchard but that suggestion then of lost trees it's partly a history of tasmania It encompasses decades, 
but it's a very touching story of an adolescent's journey and his pathway into adulthood. So once again, Robbie, thank you very much for talking with me today. The book is Limberlost, the author Robbie Arnott, and it's a text publishing release. So thank you, Robbie. Thanks very much, David.